There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1098. Uh, head over to ID10T.com. We're going to start putting up uh, Halloween stuff in the vintage shop uh, that we have there. I mean, even though, you know, look, I know there probably won't really be much of a Halloween this year, but we can still spiritually celebrate Halloween. Uh, we put up, a, usually every year we put up a holiday tree starting in October that is a Halloween tree, which in November rolls into a Thanksgiving tree, and then it, after Thanksgiving it rolls into a Christmas tree. Uh, and this year Lydia said, oh, we should put up a Halloween tree. And I was like, no, there's not really going to be much of a Halloween. I don't know. And she goes, no, we're doing this. And we did it. And I'm so glad we did. It just, the, the, the sort of the, um, the infusion of Halloween spirit was, was much needed and much appreciated. And, uh, and I'm, I'm so, (laughs) I'm so glad that, uh, she insisted that we do it because, uh, it's great. You can put up a Halloween tree. Uh, it can be anything you want, uh, just to sort of, you know, give the feeling of like, ah, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a little Halloweeny now. And I'm glad, I'm so glad I put up a, I put up the video of the tree is on my Instagram feed, which is just at Hardwick. Uh, and also ID10T is just at ID10T. So go there and follow it and we'll post more things. Uh, but let's talk about you, the ID10T community on the corkboard. Uh, this is the ID10T Community Corkboard, events at ID10T.com. Like Adrian, who writes, I'm an artist from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and I was inspired to write in because I literally thought to myself, hey, I just made a thing. It's called I Must Belong Somewhere, and it's an illustration series I created based off photos I take, mostly from my travels, uh, back when we were allowed to do that sort of thing. The prints are simple line drawings that focus on the story elements of a photo, stripping away the background noise, leaving a minimal line art illustration that looks... Great pretty much anywhere, from home to offices, home offices, and even dorm rooms. I had a rough couple of years, and this project is the first thing in a long time where I really feel a future for it, and it's helped me find a direction and purpose again. As much as the pandemic sucks, the time alone and the reduction in social distractions has helped me to arrive at this idea. In part through the steady encouragement from the podcast, uh, I can say I I feel I found my thing, so I want to say thank you and share with the community. You can find it at imustbelongsomewhere.com. Or on Instagram, the account is somewhere I am B. Um, oh, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing, and uh, I'm, I, I hope you're feeling better. I'm, I'm glad that things are uh, feeling more positive and constructive and productive, and and I really do hope that you own the success of that because you manifested that. Uh, you you sought inspiration and you sought to do something um, to, uh, help you heal and do something constructive. And so, uh, really, really amazing work, you know, that's, that's the best that we can do. So that is, that is really great. And I hope people go visit, I must belong somewhere.com. I certainly shall.
This episode is Alan Arkin, who is a legendary uh, performer. Legendary. I mean, he's a legendary performer, writer, director. He's been in some of the greatest entertainment things of all time between stage and television and film. Uh, He's a Tony Award winner. He's an Academy Award winner. Uh, He's been in, I mean... What, Glen, Gary, Glen Ross, Argo, Little Miss Sunshine, uh, The Slums of Beverly Hills. Uh, he was great in Growth Point Blank, uh, which is a, a fun movie. It's a good rewatch, uh, especially if you're a Gen Xer, because the soundtrack is amazing. But uh, he's great in that. He's great. He's great in everything. He was just most recently on The Kaminsky Method. So, look, you know what? Just go to his IMDb page and be blown away by not just the quantity, but also the quality of the stuff that he has worked on. So when uh, the bookers for the podcast said, hey, would you want to talk to Alan Arkin? He's written a book about his like lifetime journey with meditation. I was like, holy shit. Talk about all the boxes being checked between, you know, because Alan also was a Second City guy in the 60s. So you're talking about comedy, improv, uh, all of the great film stuff he's been in, and meditation on top of that. And, uh, and he's, and he was amazing. He, I even tell him in the podcast, like this exceeded every expectation and my expectations were high and he exceeded all of them. He's so open and honest and warm and, and just has such a great perspective as someone who's spent his life really being self-reflective and just trying to learn how to be a, 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 a better human being. And so, uh, there's just so much to take away from this podcast. So many little, um, chunks of wisdom and he's really funny, uh, on top of that. And I, and I was really honored because he, we talk about comedy and we traded emails. And so we were kind of emailing about comedy and, and, uh, and then he watched my comedy, he watched my last comedy special, Funcomfortable. And, but before he watched it, he was like, oh, I'm going to watch your special and, and don't worry. I, I, you know, I'm going to tell you, I like it no matter what. <laughs> Which was, which was hilarious, and uh, so he said he liked it. But, and so I'm just going to take that at face value. Uh, his book is called Out of My Mind. It is available wherever books are sold. And uh, and and thank you, Alan Arkin. Uh, I adore you, and it was such an honor to spend this time with you on the podcast. Oh, and the podcast we did with uh, the, with Zoom backgrounds because he signs on. Uh, I'm telling you this because we're talking about like we're midway talking about it when the podcast first starts, just to give you context. So when he comes on, the planet Earth is in the background and he goes, yeah, this this was in the background. I don't know. I go, no, leave it. It's great. Uh, And then I turn mine to I go, well, if you're out in space, I should be like in the weeds. So I'm like in grass, like my background is grass and his is planet Earth. So we just did the whole podcast that way. And I, I post, I'm going to post a picture of it on the um, ID10T uh, Instagram account. So there you go. I hope you enjoy. I think you will. The ID10T podcast number 1098 with Mr. Alan Arkin. Initiating ID10T protocol. There was the earth behind me, 
I've been reading about a new mini moon that might be coming into Earth's orbit. You might be it. You might be the mini moon that's orbit orbiting the Earth. The mini moon. I am the mini moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the title of my next book. I am the mini moon. <laughs> well, I, that's it's uh, just. I feel like the baby in two thousand one. If you just if you just get in the fetal position, <laughs> it's a perfect. <laughs> I've been hearing about how, uh, uh, you know, people can Zoom bomb. They can basically just drop into Zooms that they weren't invited to. And if you could just drop in as the baby from 2001 to random meetings, I really think it would lighten the mood. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? How are you holding up? How am I holding up? Yeah. They don't ask that of people when they're in their 30s, do they? they no, oh, you mean no, because I mean, of, I mean, of the pandemic and the quarantine. The we're fine. I hate to admit it, but if I if I don't pay any attention to the news, I'm fine. Right. Uh, every, every, oh, we we live our, we're living pretty much except for going to the market, which my wife was not allowing me to do. Right. Uh, for the past six months, everything's pretty much the same way as it is. And right. I miss seeing I miss seeing my kids with their with their real faces. Right. You know, instead of looking, isn't it? If we're living in a backwards world right now, where you, if you go into a bank, uh, not wearing a mask, <laughs> you get arrested. Oh, that's really funny. I never thought of so Everything's backwards and upside down. It's, a, it's a, we're living in a science fiction movie. It is. We are in our own dystopian future. This is a bizarre. Yeah. Either that or it's a zombie movie, and the aliens are very, very small. And the, the enemy, we don't know whether they're alive or dead. We have no idea. We have an enemy that we that we don't know whether it's a zombie movie. It is. Or, we're, or this is all a simulation, or we're living in some type of weird computer simulation and that we completely lack the awareness well, of. Well, I mean, if you study Eastern philosophy, that's that's without without the word computer, that's exactly what they're... That's exactly what they say it is. That's a really interesting way to put it. So I did read your book and it was such a, it's not at all what, I don't know what I expected, but it was it's just really great, honest, spiritual journey with these stories that in the beginning, uh, as you read further, you st- I, I feel like at least I started to understand an overall kind of arc of a spiritual journey. But there's just so many things that I'm so excited to talk to you about, from comedy to meditation to Eastern philosophy. It's all uh, the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it definitely, as someone who's been practicing transcendental meditation for, I don't know, a few years now. Oh, uh, you have been? I have, yeah. yeah. Good for you. And, I'm sure it's helped already immeasurably in this past six months. It does. I mean, it is, it, it is, sometimes it's hard to get going a little bit because you even point out in the book, you start to meditate and then your mind is just flooded with chatter. Uh, and it seems like, you know, it's particularly the journey of the performer, the comedic performer. It feels like a lot of our life's path is just silencing the inane chatter in our heads at all time. Would you say that that has been a large part of your journey? Are you, are, can you say that in another way? Well, I just mean like um, anxiety, you know, like 
thought patterns, obsessive thoughts, negative thoughts, uh, you know, self-sabotage, wanting to, you know, like too much awareness. I mean, is it, has that sort of been too much awareness of the wrong thing? Exactly. Um, Yes. Well, well, what, uh, what most, I've heard this from several, when I hear the same information from three completely disparate sources, I start thinking that, well, this may be something we ought to pay attention to. That I, it's like watching, looking three dots that give you the idea of what a circle is, and then you find the circle by connecting those three dots and going on, continuing the arc. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, yeah. But what I hear from several, what I have heard from many sources, but I forget what the question is. I took such a detour. <laughs> what, what I've heard from many sources is, oh, here, this is it, is that 98% of the thoughts that you thought today are thoughts that you thought yesterday. That you're not having original thoughts come into your head. You're just re uh, hamster hamster wheeling the same material that you did yesterday. And once you realize that, when you start paying attention to that, then for my, what I had to do is I said, this is a nightmare. I got to get off this. And that was part of the thing that led me to this exploration, which continues uh, now. Yeah. Because Um, it seems like when you were young, it started with therapy and uh, and then it kind of transitioned into therapy, but also more Eastern philosophy and spirituality and meditation. And But it seems like there was a constant journey inward, but it also yeah. felt like you were trying to dislodge something, like some level of discomfort with yourself yeah. or some general discomfort and sort of realizing, well, that's kind of a lifelong process. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if you start recognizing that the, what they say in all Eastern philosophy that there was no beginning to all this and there was there's not going to be any end, which is comforting uh, if you believe it or if you know it. I mean, the, there's a difference between I, I talk about that a lot in the book. There's a difference between belief and knowing something. Knowing something is actually experiencing something. Believing something is wanting for it to be true, and it not it isn't necessarily. Right, uh, but I, I knew early on how I knew it. I don't know, but I knew that there was something wrong with me, and it wasn't the world. It was me, and I had to fix it. There, there was a sense one, once I got told by three people in my late twenties that I had to see a psychiatrist soon. <laughs> I said, "Well, maybe, maybe after three people told me this, that maybe it's a good idea to to run to somebody and." find out what the hell's going on inside me well that's, uh, yeah that's interesting because in the that i would imagine that would have been in the uh, in the 60s probably yeah uh and and i and i always think that around that time it wasn't necessarily as popular to go see a therapist it, it almost was stigmatized that, that was that was very popular when i went to a I mean, there wasn't an actor in the business that didn't go to didn't say i'm in therapy okay. But but like I, I think I said this also in the book that mo- what most of the actors were doing were thinking that they were going to help their acting. Got it. The the, the, the idea of uh, of finding out what their own insides consisted of and what their consciousness uh, 
consisted of uh, was I think secondary or tertiary. They, I, it wasn't foremost in their minds. They wanted their acting to get better and be like Brando went to a psychiatrist. Oh, my God, I'm going to go to a psychiatrist. Got it. So the so the idea of like deep personal self reflection was secondary to the. I, 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 that was my guess. With me, it was it was not that way. I knew I needed to find something. I had a knot in me that I had to untie, uh, and therapy got me to the point. I, I had a wonderful guy I worked with. I loved him. Uh, we became friends after I stopped uh, working with him, uh, but he could only take me so far. I started having experiences that he didn't understand. He just wasn't in his lexicon. Uh, and I, I knew I had to go up elsewhere. You mean experiences and not to delve too personally, but since you talk about it in the book, I'll, you know, and anything you don't want to talk about, just it's, no, no, the, if it's in the book, I might as well talk about it. I mean, sure. But it, were, were these were these experiences that were sort of more spiritual experiences that were difficult to explain, or was it just did you felt like you had evolved to the type of therapy that you wanted to go from like a Freudian thing to something else? No, I I, I got into events. I I wasn't having uh, in quotes spiritual or kind of miraculous experiences uh, until somewhat after leaving him. But uh, but I did I, I did get in the zone frequently. My, I was so obsessed with acting that I got into the zone a lot. And, and I talk about the zone. Everybody talks about the zone now. I mean, you know what the zone is. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I got and I explained. He asked me what that was, and I explained what that experience was. And he says there's a Freudian term for the zone was the most exalted experience anybody can have on this plane of existence as, as far as I'm concerned. It's when it, it, it's athletes have it, I think as frequently as anybody else on the planet. And when an athlete has the experience of being in the zone, time slows down so that they're aware and the awareness, it gets enhanced and your sense of you become bilocated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you start seeing events from uh, a, pl- a place that's higher than you are simultaneously with being in, in, in your bodily situation. Uh, everybody ex- ex- describes it almost exactly the same way. And I was having it on stage a lot. And it's, it's like there's a better part of you that's yelling at you, go, go, yeah, everything's perfect, everything's fine, you're going to know. And there are no, no mistakes. You can't make mistakes. You can't miss an opportunity. And friends I've had who have witnessed this kind of thing in athletic events say that the entire audience always knows when somebody gets into that place yeah. with them. So it becomes a mass experience uh, and a personal experience simultaneously. And I described it to my doctor, my therapist, and he said, there's a Freudian term for that. He was a Freudian. And I said, what is it? He said, it's, uh, he says, it's uh, uh, regression in service of the ego. And I didn't, I didn't have the courage to say that to him at the time. I said, that's bullshit. I said, this is, it's, it, it, that makes it sound like a regression of some kind. It, right. It's the most exalted experience I, it was like a drug to me. Once I experienced it, I wanted, experienced it. I wanted that experience all the time. 
And I said, this is the most exciting and wonderful and harmless experience. It's like being on drugs without the, without becoming addicted to anything except the experience. Yeah. And I said, he's wrong. He's wrong. And at that moment, I had to go somewhere else. I didn't know what it was. I said, he's taking, I said, that's the wrong term for it. It's not regression of the service of the ego. It's uh, exaltation in service of the soul and some, or whatever it is that's bigger than me that I can get to in some right. way. Uh, and, uh, I knew I had some more exploration to do in, in finding out what that experience was. But the mistake I made, if you don't mind me going on about this, the mistake I make, made and what the mistake everybody makes, almost everybody, when they get into this place called the zone, the, the mistake is kind of a humble mistake. They start worshiping the experience, like an athlete will start worshiping uh, the game that's placed him into that position. You start worshiping basketball right. or football. Or, and I start worshiping acting. I think it was the God of acting that got me to that place. The mistake is an inversion of the truth, which is that my devotion towards the craft of acting is the place, is the thing that opened that door. It was the recog- I finally, after decades, recognized that it was my devotion to the craft of acting that got me to a place where I could experience that thing. Uh, um, uh, basketball players' uh, devotion to his craft of acting, to the craft of uh, basketball, got him to that place. Uh, and it's an important distinction because. Uh, what you ultimately want to get to uh, is a place where that where you have that sense all the time, which can can ultimately happen. It takes decades and decades, of maybe lifetimes of work to get to that, but it, it's available. Um, I have always thought of the zone, that experience, as being in a state of absolute presence, where absolute. you are. Presence, where you are yeah. as absolutely present in the moment and connected, and um, you know, I've my experiences with that are through doing stand-up comedy of having moments where I feel like when I'm on stage, I recognize, I can see everything that's happening in the room. I know where I'm going. I can that's rip the, people in the crowd. That's it. And it's all, it all weaves together. And I know that your background is from Second City. You must have yeah. had that experience on stage doing sketch and improv. I mean, like, Absolutely. improv is purely present. Yeah, it's glorious. Uh, I've had two great teachers in my life, and about three or four peripheral wonderful teachers. And the second teacher said, when I described that experience, he says, being halfway to God. Uh, Hindus don't have any problem using the word God. Uh, I, I tend towards Buddhism. Uh, it's halfway halfway towards liberation uh, or God or whatever word you want to use. He says the next stage, <laughs> the next <laughs> stage, and this is the hard one, is he says when you're in the state of being in the zone, you're becoming the witness. You become the witness to your life and life. Uh, so you kind of bilocate. You become, there's two of you. You become the witness to your own uh, 
existence. But to get to the next stage, you have to become the witness to the witness. <laughs> it just keeps going out. <laughs> yeah, apparently that's it. That's well, but that's what meditation, what's, what's great about meditation is that you are essentially conditioning yourself to be present and to be able to push out all of the past things that might haunt you or the future things that might antagonize and stress you that may may never come to pass and living in as present a state as possible but it is i i do find that there must be a reason that it's difficult to maintain that 24 7 you know like it does come in verse i mean i guess unless you're you know a really, really masterful meditator or, or practitioner of it. I don't know. How long are you able to get it to sustain? I, I, I don't know if there's an answer to that. I, I, I would guess that Nirvikalpi Samadhi, Nirvikalpi Samadhi, which is the second degree of, of Samadhi, which happens all the time when you, you know who talks about this is a great Zen uh, master, American guy uh, from California, who is who, as lucid about all this as anybody. His name is Ajay Shanti. Uh, he, was, he was originally Stephen Gray when he lived in when he was a kid in California, but when he reached some uh, a couple of levels of of uh, samadhi, he changed his name because he thought he was no longer Stephen Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he talks about this state, he says that there is an initial state of samadhi where you have the experience and it goes away, but you can remember it. There's another state in which the sense of bilocation, that we've been, which is what we've been talking about for about 10 minutes, uh, you, you can maintain. That's a, that's, that takes some doing. You have to meditate for more than 10 minutes a day for a couple right. of months to experience. <laughs> to experience that, I mean, I've been I've been doing it for fifty years. I, I uh, I'm not I haven't begun to experience anything like that. Can I ask you a little bit about improv? No. In the 60, okay. Oh yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Okay. Good. Um, it, I, I'm curious about improv in the '60s because it, it I don't, for lack of a better word, improv technology has certainly evolved over the years. And you know, as as a member of Second City in the '60s, you were kind of on, pretty much on the ground floor of like modern day improv as we know it. So no, pretty much, we were the we were the beginning. We were it. And so what? What? So without a lot of frames of reference for it, how did you view it and how did you approach it? Was it just, oh, we can go on stage and, you know, with a certain set of training, just create spontaneity, spontaneous scenes? I mean, what was the, what was the impetus for it? Well, oh God, I, that's, that's a complicated question. <clears throat> uh, we, we had workshops, we, we would have workshops every day uh, I, li- I lived at the theater 18 hours a day. I just went home to sleep and I'd forget about eating. Uh, I'd forget about anything except it was the first steady job I'd ever had. I was about in my late 20s and I just ate it up like a sponge. I just go to workshops every And I had had serious acting training for many years before that. So I used the tools I had for my acting training. And we did improv stuff. It was, it was the method, but was not the, the method, the American method, which I have always hated. 
because I felt like it was an adjunct. I felt like uh, Lee Strasberg always wanted to be a psychiatrist and was trying to destroy people's uh, minds in in the in the in the in the actor what was it was it called the actor studio. Stanislavski was not into that. He was interested in something that was more pure and didn't kill you uh, or, or 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 turn you into a psychiatric mess. Uh, so we used a lot of improvisational tools based on what Stanislavski was doing. My teacher had studied with Stanislavski, so we got the horse's mouth. So improvisation was 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 uh, something I was comfortable with, but not comedic improvisation. That was something that I had to kill myself to in order to become comfortable with. Uh, and I worked my rear. I thought that when I got into Second City that I was going to get fired for the first couple of months because I wasn't funny and I, I was terrified because I, I had not been able to get a job anywhere else up at that point. And I thought if I lose this, I'm dead. I'm, I'm dead in the water. Uh, but after a couple of months, by happenstance, I found a character that was funny. I played this character, and as that character, I was funny. So I just hung on to that character like like a life preserver and then I got comfortable enough on stage with that character so that I added to that character and I found another character and during my time at Second City two I had two years there during my time I developed a library of characters where when a, an idea was suggested I would run through this I just turn the dial and find out which character would work for that particular scene and shove him into the scene Oh, wow. And I never, I never got near playing myself on stage at Second City. I was not capable of doing it. I didn't know there wasn't me. I thought that I only existed really as those characters. Wow, that, that's, that's, that's kind of huge, though. I mean, at least first to have the understanding of if I'm going to make this work, I have to be these other characters. But then the admission, like, I don't even know who I am, which bleeds back into the other journey that you had been going on personally through that entire time. Well, I, I didn't, it wasn't until I uh, got to New York with Second City that I realized that I was in trouble personally. Uh, because I, here I was now, Second City was at that point incredibly successful. We were making a big uh, wave, we were making big waves in Chicago, we made big waves in New York. They devoted a two-hour television special to us. Uh, and the day after that, we became the darlings of New York, uh, getting a very intelligent crowd. And here I was at the top of the, uh, of the new wave of, uh, of theater and, and making pretty good money at that point, uh, certainly more than I'd ever had in my life at that point. And I was not happy. I was, uh, when I was off stage, you could have hung me up in a closet for all the good I was doing anybody. And I, and I realized there's something wrong. I have what I've always dreamed of, and uh, there's something wrong. So that was when I started uh, therapy at that point. It's such a common story, too, where you hear people strive for something. I mean, I talk about a lot on the podcast, too, where it's like, oh, if I get this thing, it'll fix me. If I get this thing, it'll make me happy. And then the acquisition of the thing, there's a little bit of a a high for a minute. (laughs) And then kind of a weird emptiness and, and I hear it time and time and time again and all of the philosophy that I've read and Buddhism and Stoicism and whatever it is like things won't fix you things won't make you whole and yet we chase the shit out of them 
Like they're well, going to see culture, that. This, that's what this culture is based on. Get the new, get the new, the smiling faces of people have the new this, the new that, the new car. Oh, yeah, baby, I'm finally happy. Get the house, get the, uh, get the house in the suburbs, get the this, get the that. We're, we're conditioned to buying something that's going to do the work instead of us doing the work inside. And it does not work. It never works. It'll work for 15-minute increments, but then you got to go on to the next thing. I got a Maserati. I got a Porsche. And then some. you have to drive it in the street, and someone bangs into it. Someone scratches it when they open the door. You become, your life is down the toilet. <laughs> well, I just, I like, there was a particular line in your book that I remember, that I made a note to remember, which was, it was essentially along the lines of all the laughter and applause didn't equal love. That wasn't like love. Yeah. So not real love and not, I guess, self-love either. But, uh, but that, that, it's, it's my, my, my agent finally said, Alan, the producers want they love you. And I finally, after you, I said, stop telling me they love me. Nobody, they don't love me. <laughs> they, they want me, they li- like my acting and they want to hire me. Don't tell me they love me. Right. I know who loves me. And it's a handful of people, and that's fine. That's uh, fine. I think my kids love me. My wife loves me. One or two other people, a couple of friends that I rely on, uh, that can rely on me. But it's also finding that place where you do things because they're enjoyable and fun, but not because you need to for some emote, like you're cert- you're trying to fill some emotional gap, you know, it's like yeah. you can perform because it's fun, but if you're doing it because you're trying to fill a hole, then it could become problematic because that hole might be probably unfillable. Yeah. My understanding is that Seinfeld is uh, connected with TM. Yes. Uh, and that sooner or later, he's going to realize that it hasn't, that it's made him incredibly rich, but there's still something missing. I hope he's found it already. I see indications that, that he might be closer to that in this last stand-up thing, which was hysterical. The one he did 23 hours a day, I think it's called. Uh-huh. Uh, five minutes into it, it starts getting hysterical. I start to see seeds of grinding that he wasn't admitting to before, and it, certainly in his stand-up. Uh, so maybe, maybe the TM is working on him. Well, I hope I've... I've read a lot of things that that suggest that people tend to get happier in their 50s and 60s. And I, you know, and I hope that's true as I think they start maybe letting go to some of these attachments, these attachments to the physical world or like things that they thought were so important when they were young that you realize like, ah, eh, it's not really that important. Would you would you say that's has that been true for you? It's true for me, but I wouldn't say it's because I'm older. I think it's because I've been working my butt off on, on trying to understand uh, a deeper aspect of the human condition that I'm getting from commercial television in, right. in this country. Uh, I've, 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 I feel like I've worked very, very hard for 50 years on, uh, on trying to uh, uh, get some kind of handle on what this is all about. And I, to the extent that I've done that, I've gotten infinitely happier. And it has nothing to do with, I don't think it's, I see plenty of people my age that are miserable, uh, who are pretending they're happy or, or, or resigned to something. But I, I don't, 
feel that age necessarily doesn't unless there's some amount of examination that goes along with it. I used to think happiness was a thing that felt like a surge of joy or something. <laughs> and, and now I, f- I feel like I'm starting to realize, I think it's just peace. I think it's the absence of stress and anxiety and depression and self-loathing or whatever it is that happiness is really this kind of like even state of peace. Would you agree or how, how do you define it? Happiness? Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, well, let me, let me work on that for a while. <laughs> this episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, it's, it's a lot of what, you, what you're saying it is. It's giving up. It's a lot of it is having the courage to give up the illusions of what life is supposed to be about. It is. Oh, wow. Um, uh, I think there is happiness with like like uh, there's an old Chinese saying that says to be he says liberation is easy for the man with no preferences liberation is easy. Yeah, and that's and probably that, about expectations and desires and wanting to control yeah. outcomes and that sort of thing. There's, a, there's an interesting thing that's that I've noticed in myself, and I guess if it's true for me, it's probably true for other people as well, uh, and that is every illusion I have had about what the living living is like, every time I've given up an illusion, it's accompanied by a sense of depression for a while. And I realized, I said, wait a minute, I'm closer and closer to reality. Shouldn't it be joyous? And I said, well, it ends up being joyous. But the first reaction is depression because the illusion is something you felt that has been sustaining you. I have. I, I, once I get this, everything's going to be fine. Once I get that, everything's going to be fine. And giving up that that imaginary sense of what life is is sad. Each time, it's been sad. It, it ends up being joyous. Ends up being joyous because then you become free. Give living without illusion is freedom. Uh, if you believe or understand that life is meant to be joyous. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be give, give you happiness and joy. Uh, 
poor people are easy, you see, have an easier time sharing things than rich people do. That's uh, because they recognize what they can live without. Rich people don't know what they can live without. And, and can also be controlled by their things. That, yeah, it's the same. It's the same. That's the same idea. Really. But 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 you know this uh, this thing that you're talking about the, the depression that uh, it sounds like there th- this this illusion is sort of a creature that dies and there's a mourning period, you yeah. know, like during the change which humans need but also fear, you know, yeah. like that idea in your book that you say the one thing you know one of the two things I know is that everything's better with more garlic and everything changes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, that everything changes, that nature of change. And yet I, it just feels like the more we, you know, like the longer we live, the less we want change because change is uncomfortable. And what accompanies is what you talk about this depression, but it's also necessary <laughs> for growth. So it's kind of yeah. a fucked up uh, uh, duality. No, no, you, 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 you've done a lot of work on yourself. It sounds like you've done a lot of thinking about this. Well, I, but also it, it's like, it's accepting the fact, like you said, that, you know, like you're suggesting, it's like, it's not that there's a finish line where you're going to spike a ball and go, holy shit, I'm enlightened. You know, it's like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the same way that you wouldn't go into a gym for a week and go, well, I guess I'm fit for the rest of my life. Like, yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, it's well, a regular practice. Yeah. It was just, a, it's the, the, the tools were the same tools it would be if you want to be a great pianist. I mean, uh, like somebody says to me, uh, they're meditating. Oh, they've been meditating for a long time. But if a pianist says that to me, he says, yeah, who are you? Are you Liberace or are you, are you uh, Oscar Peterson? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. Just uh, you, You'll get a certain amount of chops, but where has the chops taken you? Right. Where has the chops taken you to? Uh, yeah. I don't know anybody who hasn't meditated for a long time that hasn't achieved some degree of comfort with themselves, some degree. Uh, like the people I know who meditate have been surviving this, this uh, cor- cor- the coronavirus thing with fairly well. They're doing pretty well. Uh, it's, an ex- it's, oh, I'm on a long retreat. I'm a long retreat. I can use this. I can use this for fodder for my growth. It's not a nightmare. Oh my God. It's tough on people who make a living day to day. That I don't like the crews on movies are having a tough time because yeah. they, they, they got nowhere to go. But, yeah. Uh, uh, but, but people who have some way of getting by uh, through this period are, are by and large, okay, because they have other things to focus on. We, my wife and I, have saying, God, it's we have no excuse now to dig further in, into our practice, to meditate more, longer, and deeper. Um, but I like the idea of thinking about peace and happiness as a practice, as opposed to a result. You know, because when you think of things as a practice, you accept the fact that it's just. You know, well, you you make daily deposits or you do daily inquiries or whatever it is, and you know, <laughs> daily deposits. That's good. Oh, thanks. Yeah, there's like there's like a bank account. You know, you make daily deposits, and you make <laughs> these daily deposits because eventually you might be taxed out. Like you might get hit with some sort of a spiritual tax or a universal tax. 
<laughs> and you're going to need to draw upon the well of your your emotional savings. I mean, it feels that's you know, that's very well put. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so it you know the idea of and I think this goes. I think this also applies to like writing, for instance, or anything that you have to put time into. Not every day is going to be some inspired revelation, but the important part is the maintenance of it to continue to do it, right? I mean, would you say not every meditation is some life-altering experience, but you do it because it's part of the process? Yeah, that's very good. One of the, parenthetically, one of the wonderful, one of the most, one of the most wonderful things that has happened as a result of all this is that I no longer, and it just happened. It's not something I worked at. I used to think of myself as an actor. And then in the West, when you are, people ask you, what do you do? That's the definition of who you are. In the East, when they ask you what, what your profession is, it's not a description of who you are. It's a description of what you do. Wow. It's, a, it's a huge difference. What, what are you? So, well, I'm a human being. What do you do? Oh, I, I paint. Uh, or I, 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 some, I, no, I, I no longer think of myself as an actor. And that has been unbelievably liberating. I now think of myself, and it's just something, and I real, I, I'm saying this for the first time now, it's not something that I've ever consciously thought about before at this moment, but it's been unbelievably liberating because I can go on a stage, and, uh, on a stage now and, and it doesn't define me, so I don't have anything that's... Everything at stake. Yes, it dislodges your ego from the process. Yeah, I don't have any at stake, anything at stake, which may have been a detriment to the laser quality. I, I, I guess I used people to say I used to have a kind of a laser-like concentration when I was acting. I no longer have, but I have something better, and it might be more healing for myself and hopefully somebody else who's watching. That that. Uh, I don't mean to describe it as as uh, and and it's also true. So I never had never thought of myself as a writer. I've got nine books under my belt now, but I've never thought of myself as a writer. I've just thought of every once in a while I, I've had a boil that's come to the surface, and I've had to lance it in order to get something out, and, and it comes flying out of me in that in a in written form. But I'm. But, I have never thought of myself as a writer, so it's easy. You're not a writer. Okay, I never was anyway, so what difference does it make? I mean, yeah, that is that is incredibly liberating, especially in the kind of like, you know, when we sort of think about what we do as part of this like social capitalism, where it's like, yeah. oh, I have more value if I am, uh, you know, the best actor or the best this or I have this award. And it's like, well... Not really. I mean, that's all fluid, and that's all shit you can't control. So, right. so, so, so I'm going to be I'm going to be a writer. Well, what does that mean? You're going to be a writer. That means you're, you're going to put things down on paper. Okay, that's all it means. Is are you going to put stuff down on paper? Well, do you have anything that of any interest to put down on paper? Or are you just going to put it? Doesn't matter what you put down on paper. Yeah, that's. How about how about you spend the time being a human being? And that's a, it's a like, so I, what I, what I can say about this now is that uh, acting is no longer the definition of who I am. It's an expression of who I am. It's just a side issue of who I am. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not the d- definition of who I am. 
And thank God, because it was the definition of I am, I'm paying God, I'm paying homage to a God that doesn't exist. There was no God of acting. You know, it's, it's, it's not the be all and end all of anything. It's just a side, a side effect of, 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 of your degree of consciousness, whatever it happens to be. And also, it's also putting your value in an incredibly tumultuous business that shifts and turns for all kinds of unpredictable reasons. I mean, what a crazy way to exist. Yeah, and what is the definition of being an actor? Just like, well, I have it, I, I talk about a lot in the, in the first book I, uh, I wrote about eight years ago, and I have an, a Martian as a human being. What is an actor? What is? What do you do? I, I'm an actor. What is an actor? It's just somebody who pretends he's a human being. <laughs> and the Martian says, aren't you a human being? And the answer is, yeah, I am. He says, why do you have to pretend you're a human being? I said, because people like to watch me pretending I'm a human being. <laughs> Don't they like you watching you being a real human being? Not as much. <laughs> it goes on for pages. <laughs> it goes on for pages in my last book. And if they pay you for this, I say, yeah. This is your, your strange species. I say, I have to agree. <laughs> Because that, that's why I always thought the difference between, you know, at the beginning of my comedy career was like, I think I want to be a stand-up, but I'm going to look at improv and sketch. And then I realized, no, I just like being myself on stage, you know? Like the idea of being something else feels uh, claustrophobic to me. Because it's like, no, I'm trapped in this other thing that's, it just feels like I can't be nimble, you know? And I and that that, that makes it harder. Did you ever feel like, Stand-up was a thing that you ever wanted to try, or no, no, <laughs> no. The, the closest I ever came to it was during the beginning of the pandemic. My kids started asking me to sing, sing songs for them, so I started improvising songs and did it. Three, they put three of them on uh, on YouTube. I think they're pretty funny, but uh, I improvised three songs for them. The last one was my favorite. It was about the Celtius, uh, which, which to me is the end of civilization altogether. Was people not knowing their, they exist or their presence. So they have to have a picture of themselves with everything on the, on the face of the earth in order to prove it. In order to prove that they were there and that they're alive. Oh my oh god, my. I never thought of it that way. You're right. Selfies are like, I exist, right, guys? I exist. Please tell me I exist. That's but the song begins every half an hour I make a little selfie so I can prove to myself I'm still alive. When myself when I when I take a picture on my cell phone, I know it's me and not a guy named Clive. And then, <laughs> It's the end of civilization. <laughs> At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? 
or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. But I mean, I think one of the things that has kept you so vibrant is your inquiry and your willingness to be curious and continue to grow and ask questions. And I feel like we only get old when we just go, no more. I'm done. No more growth. I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm done. Yeah, it certainly helps. But the genetic material also helps a little bit. I guess that helps too. Yeah, the genetic material <laughs> helps too. Who, who, else, diet. who else were you in uh, Second City with? I was with an extraordinary company of people. Uh, most of the names are not remembered except by the aficionados of, of, uh, of the form. Uh, Severn Darden was, our, I guess, our resident genius. Uh, he was he was like a Martian. He was not like a human being at all. Severn Darden, Barbara Harris went on to oh, be wow. a big star for a while. Uh, Paul Sand had a, did a lot of television activity. Uh, uh, who, who else? Uh, Andy uh, uh, Andrew, Andy Duncan was absolutely brilliant. Never got the attention he deserved. Uh, when when Severn would go away on vacation, people would say, "Oh my God, we're going to fall apart." And then when the company the company came apart, nobody knew the difference. Same true with Barbara Barbara Harris. They said, "Oh my God, we can't function without her." Mina Cole, "Oh, we can't function without." I me, I took a vacation. Oh, it's going to fall. When Andrew Duncan left the company for two week vacation, we absolutely fell apart. It wasn't until then that we realized how important he was. Who else? Uh, Andrew, Mina, Barbara Harris, Paul Sands, Severn, me, uh, and uh, uh, Tony Holland was absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant actor. Gene Trubnik, uh, that was basically the original company. I mean, Barbara Harris is literally everything she's in, she's flawless. Like, she can take... You know, she's in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for like five minutes and you cannot take your eyes off her. She's so fucking amazing and just uh, great at everything she was in in the 70s too, freaky friday i mean she's just such a she was such a flawless performer yeah um when you left second city it's interesting that you said oh i never thought of myself as comedic but you're such a great comedic actor but is that wrong to say comedic actor is it like no i'm an actor and comedy is one of the things that i do I don't really care. I mean, call me anything except late for lunch, as the saying goes. Right. Uh, my favorite stuff to do is serious comedy. Uh, that, that's my favorite pocket, if I had to put myself into a pocket. A comedy that has bite to it, comedy that has uh, some social relevance. Like Slums um, of Beverly Hills. Slums of Beverly Hills and the Russians are coming. Uh, uh, to me... Uh, 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 what else? Uh, um, well, Little Murders, um, 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 Little Miss Sunshine, I felt had great uh, social relevance, had had great statements to make about the human condition without shoving them in your face. Right. Uh, how uh, how the most disparate family in the world can pull together for for a 
beautiful dream of a child. Uh, it never states that, but that's what the whole movie is about. Uh, these crazy, crazy people who are on the verge of falling off the planet when they, when they, when the child of the of the group needs something badly, they're all completely there for hundred percent. And that's, I think, one of the great powers of the film. And the other great thing about the film is I, when they sent it to me and, and I read it, the first, <laughs> I read the first 10 pages. I said, this is the most depressing movie I've ever read in my life. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> and then on page 11, I started laughing and I just laughed for the next 90 pages. I said, I have to be connected with this. I got to do this. Oh, that's, and I, that's that's what ba- basically everybody in the film felt the same, exactly the same thing. <laughs> um, I feel like I remember seeing the in-laws in the movie theater. I feel like I have that memory of seeing that in the movie theater with my parents, and them, and 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 just laughing with them. Like it was, it was a fun. It was really fun because it's a it's 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 a good memory that I have of like laughing at a movie together. Because my parents and I had different senses of humor. I was much more, you know, into like stand-up comedy and Steve Martin and Richard Pryor. And, you know, they recognized that I love Saturday Night Live and they sort of understood it, but their sense of humor was just different. But In-Laws was a movie that I, I'm pretty sure we all saw together and all agreed this is a really funny movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, that was the first time in my life, and I was in my late 30s by that point, that I had switched over to uh, to to be able to enjoy the experience, uh, and it scared me. I was having a good time, and it terrified me. I said, I, "They're going to fire me." I, I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought it, I wasn't working my butt off to achieve something, and so I thought there had to be something wrong. But it was the first time. It was like a uh, a revelation to me. That's really interesting that it, that you that up to that point you felt like it had to be torturous and then all of a sudden it's fun and that is foreign to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, the 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 thing that's great about it is that it's not like you and Peter Falk are playing comedy per se. You're just you have these very strong characters that are disparate but somehow but have to come together because of their families and all these insane things happen. But you're not, it's not like you're playing comedy. It's just situationally, it's funny because the characters are so strong. Did you guys rehearse together before? Did you do improv exercises or you just... No, nothing. Uh, um, I'm one of the producers on it because it was my idea that Peter and I worked together. I I had never met him. Um, I saw him on on a talk show. And I said, I have a feeling he and I would work well together. And I called him up. I said, would you feel like doing a movie with me? And he said, yeah. I said, that's, you got an idea? I said, not at the moment. I said, well, come up. I went to Warner's and I had a pretty good relationship with Warner Brothers at the time. So I went to John Kelly, who was there. I said, I want to do a movie with Peter Ford. He said, who do you want to write it? And I had just read the the the, uh, the first a uh, draft of Blazing Saddles, which was called something else. It was written by by uh, Andrew Bergman, and it was absolute genius. And uh, I was going to direct it. I couldn't find anybody to play the part. And was, and there, nobody was there. This was fifty years ago. Richard Pryor wasn't around. Uh, he would have been brilliant. 
Uh, several other people would have been brilliant, could have, could have done it. I, th- I think uh, 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 Smith, Smith would have been brilliant, uh, Will Smith, a couple of people. But I couldn't find anybody in those days that played the part. I let go, and then uh, uh, Mel Brooks got a hold of it. It changed it and turned it into some kind of uh, vision that was more so uh, commercially acceptable and... and, and uh, it became Blazing Saddles. But you still got, so you approached Andrew Bergman and said, hey, will you write a movie for me? Uh, yeah, I approached him. I said, you want to write a movie for me and Peter Falk? He says, yeah. I said, what about? I said, I don't know anything except the fact that it sh- that Peter Peter should drive me crazy. That's the only thing I know. That, <laughs> that it did. And he comes back six weeks later, and it's the, one of the most brilliant scripts I'd ever read. One of the <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and and that, that was it. That was That was its genesis. You know, sometimes the creative process is just, it's just long and boring and you just keep whittling away and going back to it. But then there are just random people in the world who just go, oh, I just threw this thing together. It's just like that Mozart <laughs> thing of like, fuck, how do you do this? Yeah. You know, I, I, it's I like Mozart. I think Mozart was, was one of those guys who was in the zone all the time. He just, uh, he just did it because he said, I want a symphony. When do you want it? Uh, uh, a week from Wednesday. You got it. How long? Any particular key you're interested in? Okay, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I can't do it Wednesday. I have a, I have a pool tournament. How about Thursday? Thursday will be fun. <laughs> yeah, I know you wanted a five-hour symphony. I gave you a seven-hour symphony. I don't know. You can do whatever you want with the extra three hours. Yeah, but I, yeah. but is it, it has, has any of the practice, the meditation, has that helped some of your creative process when it comes to the writing, this th- thing you do, or do you just not? Yeah, because I don't, I don't feel like I have, I just feel like if it comes out, it comes out. If it doesn't come out, it doesn't come out. I'm not going to, I refuse to force anything anymore. I refuse to, I refuse to suffer over anything. I refuse to force it. But if it comes out, fine. If not, I don't, I don't care. And that's the kind of, I feel like it's, my one of my gods now is is, is uh, has been for a long time uh, in in the business is Harper Marx because I feel like that was kind of an essence of who that character was. Just I know all of those guys. It just it looks like they just didn't give a damn. Like the story is, they used to have to chain them down to to furniture pieces, otherwise they'd be away somewhere. They'd be off the set. To, um, <laughs> but that that certainty well i don't know i maybe it's it's not certainty it's caring about something else more than more than what you're supposed to care about right yes because there was a oh i i i took the i i took a screenshot of the page from your book because i where is it it's about uh Oh man, I, I I don't want to mess up the quote, but it had to do with being in service of the. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, it was it was more about being in service of a thing, asking what the thing needed rather than what you needed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, can I be basically can I be of service rather than be served? Yeah, I, I somehow understood that fairly early on. That even looking at it, it saved so much time. I see actors 
losing their way because they don't read the script. They read the, their part and what they want to do with the part and not recognizing that every part in a well-made piece has a function. And if you early on figure out what the function is of your character, it saves you an enormous amount of time and grief. Uh, uh, and that's something that's made the acting process a lot easier for me. Uh, so the same thing is going into a meeting. You're going into a meeting, five people there, and, and, you, and you say, "I gotta, I gotta look good. I gotta look good." So so and so likes me. I gotta. I want to impress. No, go in and say, "What is my function in this meeting? How can I serve this meeting?" Just take a deep breath and go in and see how can I help this event. It yeah. just takes the 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 terror and the. Uh, and the and the personal needs out of it. It makes you part of. I was just reading about uh, the Dalai Lama's talk in one of his books about his his spiritual practice, and is recognizing that he, he as an individual has no meaning. That that his only meaning becomes as to how we can serve an event, how we can serve somebody and something it takes so much pressure and tension out of, of the experience yeah and also because there's almost always some sort of a function that needs to like you if you ask the right questions there's a very strong likelihood that you're going to be able to serve some sort of a greater function if you're asking the right questions yeah yeah come, come to something and, and not know the answer not know the answer like, like <clears throat> people feel so obligated to have the answers to everything so quickly. Like uh, you hire a landscape guy. Somebody wants to fix your backyard, make it look beautiful. And the guy comes in and he says, oh, yeah, we'll put some, put some of this in the corner. This would be nice. And we'll have a little fountain over here. We'll do it. How about this? And he draws your sketch and says, that's it. That's a free consultation, and just say, oh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll let you know. Another guy comes in and he says, you got any ideas? I said, no, no. I said, I got to look at, I got to look the place over. I got to see how much light you're getting. I got to see whether you're facing the southern. I got to look on my compass and find out which direction the light is coming from. I got to find out what kind of soil you have, whether you have acidic or or alkaline soil. I got to find out what other kinds of things grow here and are happy here. It's going to take me a little time. That's the guy I want to hire. I don't want a guy hire a guy who uh, has the answers. I want a guy who knows what questions to ask. Oh wow! Yeah, knowing what questions to ask because you can actually achieve things that you want to achieve as a byproduct of asking the right questions. Yeah. Yeah, Zen mind, beginner's mind. That's what that's all about. What that's what that book. That's what that title means of that book. Zen mind, beginner's mind, is going in and, and treating like you don't know the answers. Let the answers present themselves to you. But also, you have to have a certain comfort level that they will, or that maybe they won't. That's that, yeah. That's that's what expertise is. <laughs> well, because I think I think a lot of times. We say to ourselves, like, oh, if this would happen, like I said earlier, if this would happen, I would be happy. If that would happen, I would be happy. But I feel like the people who are the best adjusted say, like, whatever happens, I'll be fine. I'll work it out. I'll figure it out. Yeah. I'll just deal with it then rather than taking on the stress of 
hypothetical anxieties or outcomes and you know like yeah. really stewing yeah. on it but like like you say though that the part of that is having a lexicon of things that you know you can fall back on yeah right. i know i know how to swim the water's going to get better but that's okay i know how to swim right um, oh god that's the perfect that's the perfect <laughs> i know how to swim if i fall in the pool i know how to swim what do you what do you do when you, you know, because everyone's human and even though you've had such a great practice for the past five decades, I'm sure there are times where you feel like anxiety, stress, fear well up. I, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Is it meditation that you go to? Is there a mantra that you go to? Like what helps you sort of dissipate and kind anxiety? of... Anxiety? Yeah, reset breathing. your peace levels. Breathing, taking five minutes and, and concentrating solely on slow, deep breathing. That that will always take care of it for me. Uh, always. Um, That's fantastic. Uh, what's interesting is, and I I don't if you've been working two years on a practice, so you're gonna. A lot of people. One of one of the issues I have with a lot of uh, people that uh, promote meditation is that they. They say, oh, you're going to get bliss. It's going to be blissful. It's going to be great. Yeah, initially, there's a blush of uh, sense of wonder and freedom. As you start peeling away your layers, and it's like being an onion, you start recognizing and coming to areas of clench that you've been avoiding. Uh, That will take you to a place where your meditation is no longer bringing you the peace and, and joy and equanimity that it did. And so, and so a lot of people say, oh, I was promised bliss, I was promised this and that. I ain't getting it, so it's not for me anymore. That's your first test. Coming to the place of resistance is your first te- great teacher. Your resistances are and your clenches are your great teachers. And as you progress, the clenches that you find in yourself will start revealing to themselves in deeper and deeper and more uh, primal places until you start getting to places in yourself that you don't want to reveal to yourself for nothing. Uh, and that's when you're going to experience, by, by, by getting past those places, that's when you experience real, real success. But that's, and it can get scary. I mean, it's like there was so much truth in, in the first couple of uh, Star Wars. Like when Yoda says to, to Luke, he says, he's, Luke says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. He's not afraid to face the enemy. And uh, he's not afraid to face any enemy any that's out there. And, and, uh, and uh, the, the movie is so brilliant in that in that in those and many other ways, the first couple. And Yoda says, you will be afraid. He says, you will be. And he's terrified when he faces himself in the guise of Darth Vader. Right. And and the recognition, finally, that Darth Vader is him. And literally him, because it's his father. So that's an aspect of him that he does not want to know about. And it's terrifying. And uh, you're only going to be really successful when you have the courage, finally, to face that uh, that vision, 
which is parts of yourself that you just don't want to know about for nothing. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for peppering in a great Star Wars reference. I highly appreciate that. And secondly, it reminds me of how um, I have an ex- I have a physical trainer, like an exercise trainer. We've been doing training during face with FaceTime, you know, since the quarantine. But he's a big believer in the foam roller. Have you ever laid on a foam roller before? Say again, I didn't. Foam roller. Have you ever laid down on a foam roller before? I still like still roll with the. It's like a roll. It's sort of. It sort of looks like the front tire on Fred Flintstone's car. It looks like a cylinder, you know, but it's foam. And you lay on it. Oh, a foam roller. No, yeah. I use a mod roller, which is an old-timey old, old version of the same thing. Well, it sounds like exactly what you're saying. Like the physical, uh, the, the physical companion to the emotional thing you're talking about is you lie on the foam roller for a bit, and you find that place where there's a knot. There's a place of discomfort. And that's kind of where you settle. And you sit there for a while and it hurts at first, but then it slowly starts to loosen and settle. And the idea is Uh, that you have to find those places of discomfort and dislodge them by leaning into them, which in the the grand scheme of things creates an increased flexibility overall. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, I, I, I mean, I, 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 it's not a good advertisement. But a, a couple of two weeks ago, as a result of in, in increasing my meditation practice, I started remembering things I did, not nice things I did when I was in my 20s. I started to remember, I had forgotten about them for 30 and I started remembering them. And it, it, was, it was, it filled me with just a sense of terrible shame and embarrassment and, and unhappiness. And I was like, God, is no end to this? And that was a couple of weeks ago, and it lasted for a few days, and I, thank God, I, I seem to have gotten past it this week. And you start wondering, when is there an end to, you know, remembering, remembering things that you don't want to know about? But, but I feel better now than I have in a long, long time as a result of my system chewing it up and the antibodies, the, the, the emotional and spiritual antibodies, which we all have, uh, uh, eating that up and dissolving it. But uh, but the, the couple of days now, I said, "Oh my God, is there no end? I don't want to know this about myself anymore." Were, were um, you were you hot tempered when you were younger? Did you yell at people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't violent, and I wasn't cruel. But I was—I had a serious temper. My wife says I have a—I have a, a, a. She still says I have a, um, an immaculate bullshit meter, and I—I—I—I uh, I, I, I think I have a pretty good handle on it now. I don't—I don't get—I don't get—I—I uh, I didn't like. I was really my worst moments were with leadership that was in some way corrupt that, that somehow didn't deserve my idea of what they should be capable of my idea uh, so I, I was not good with what i considered bad leadership yeah, yeah i had a, I, I, I have a pretty good handle on that now but the dalai lama admits to getting mad at people so <laughs> If it's true, I'm in good company. <laughs> well, I mean, I this chat with you, I knew it was going to be cool, especially when I first, when they said, oh, uh, would you want to have Alan Arkin on the podcast? He's written a book about 
his journey with meditation, I was like, holy shit, you know, like a phenomenal performer and a comedy guy who was also into meditation and all that. I mean, it, it, this, and, and this chat with you has so exceeded every expectation that I even had. So I just, oh, man, that's very sweet of you. I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's been such a joy to be able to, for talk. me too. Oh, and we should definitely mention that uh, the reason that you came on initially was to talk about, uh, your book, Out of My Mind, which is available now wherever books are sold. And uh, and a lot of the stuff we talk about is in the book. It, I highly recommend it. It's a great read. It's only 120 pages. And you actually read the audio book, correct? Yeah. Did you enjoy that process? Re- like of, re- of reading my yeah. own stuff? Yeah. Not, not particularly. It's, it's, it, it feels a little artificial. Right. Um, at least I knew it. I mean, I felt like I had embodied it, so I, I didn't feel like I had to reach for anything particularly. Yeah, and you can only do it for so much time before your throat starts to cave in. You're like, I can do this for like an hour or two, and then you, you never, yeah. you never think about your voice as like, yeah, it's like a muscle. You couldn't just do curls for three straight hours. You know, like your fucking arm would fall off. But uh, but I recommend the audio version. I read the book, but I want to hear the audio version as well. So. Um, thank you so much for being here, and uh, I. It's, it's, it's a delight talking with you, Chris. It's good to see you, man. Take care. Nice to meet you, Chris. You as well, Alan. Bye bye. Thanks for this. Uh, thank you. ID ten T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a Prince Charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. 12 American women are flown over to the UK for a Bachelor-style reality dating show. There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd. These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible Bachelor, Prince Harry. What? Y'all playing with me, right? You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.